Do you sing when you travel? Uh, some of you have taken road trips this summer. Of you, this summer, some of you will take uh, a few more road trips. Uh, and I'm just, I, I'm curious. I wonder if you don't. We're not going to do a poll or anything. You don't have to raise your hand. If you sing in the car. But I, I just wonder if, if growing up or even now, you you have a mixtape. Those are cassettes with two little wheels that would turn. We would stick them uh, in the car. These days, they're not even CDs anymore. But did you, would you ever like make a mixtape or a, a CD? Uh, now, would you get a playlist on an MP3 player and sing along uh, in the car as you travel, as you go on vacation or wherever it is you go? Do you sing? Uh, if you do, in the midst of your travels, then you have something in common with ancient Israelites who would sing on their way to Jerusalem. And we have the privilege of studying one of those songs this morning. Uh, so turn with me in your copy of God's inerrant, inspired, and infallible word to Psalm 127. If you're using one of the Bibles provided there in the pews around you, I think that the passage is on page 518. When you arrive at Psalm 127, you'll notice an inscription at the top, an inscription and an author right there at the top, kind of in all capital letters. You see that inscription that says, A Song of Ascents. This is kind of a going up, because you go up to Jerusalem when you travel. So, this is one of the 15 psalms that Israelite pilgrims would sing as they made their way up to the temple in Jerusalem for one of the three annual feasts. And this was like right there in the middle. So this is kind of a central psalm, as it were, in this ancient mixtape, if you will, even if you won't. Anyways, these psalms were composed at different points in Israel's history, but they were probably eventually compiled as a complete set uh, sometime after the Babylonian captivity. We began this series through the Psalms of Ascent actually back in January of 2021. Uh, we paused to take up the Book of Acts and the Apostles' Creed, but now I hope to finish these Psalms before, we, before the end of summer, and then we'll turn to the Book of Genesis and study that, Lord willing. These songs, they're, they're useful to us because like the ancient Israelite pilgrims, we too are headed somewhere. Uh, ancient pilgrims were headed to Jerusalem for worship, and we are headed to heaven, the new Jerusalem, where we will see our God face to face. So in these songs, we learn how to be holy, how to be happy, how to be heavenly minded as we make our journey here on this earth to the new heavens and the new earth. In particular, these songs teach us how to make our journey trusting in the Lord, depending upon the Lord. Indeed, one of the key themes in Psalm 127 is dependence upon the Lord in all of life. As you can see, this psalm not only has an inscription, but you see there it also has an author. It's Solomon. This is one of the two psalms by Solomon in the whole Psalter. Solomon, as you may know, he was a very wise king in Israel. And this is a, a wisdom psalm, which means that it kind of presents a challenge for us. Um, wisdom literature invites you to think, to think long and hard. Wisdom literature presents some ideas which at first can seem unrelated. Wisdom literature can be like a puzzle where we have to think about how the pieces really fit together. But if we pray and we ponder the truth presented to us, I think God is often pleased to allow us to see the greater depths of his love for us. And here's the puzzle that Psalm 127 presents to us. Here are the two pieces that Solomon gives us to fit together. First, in the first two verses, we learn of the vanity of striving without the Lord. That's the first kind of half of the psalm. And then the second half of the psalm, we learn the value of children from the Lord. As I read Psalm 127, see if you can spot these two ideas 
these two puzzle pieces for yourself in the text. Follow along as I read. A song of a sense of Solomon. Unless the Lord Yahweh builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord Yahweh watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord Yahweh, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Did you see the vanity of striving without the Lord? And I, I would say the Lord Yahweh, because you see there in all caps. That's a reference to the uh, divine name of God, Yahweh. So that's why I would read it like that. Lord Yahweh. Do you see the vanity of striving without the Lord there in verses 1 and 2? And do you see the, the value of children from the Lord in verses 3 to 5? Now it's interesting, some commentators have been so confused as to how the two halves of the psalm really fits together that they've just assumed that they were kind of two original, two different poems that somebody smashed together to bring into one here. I don't think that's what's happened with this psalm. I think that it's all from the pen of Solomon. There's an internal logic to it as well. But we're going to have to work for it to understand it. And we're going to have to work for how this would have been an encouragement to the Israelite pilgrims as they made their way to Jerusalem. So here's how I want us to kind of approach this text. I want us to take a good long look at these puzzle pieces. And then I want us to put them together. So when the, the laws go on vacation, we try to bring a puzzle, a large puzzle, some that, someone that takes kind of the majority of a week. And what do we do? We dump the pieces out on the table and then we start sorting them, right? Where are the edge pieces? Where are the pieces of similar color? Let's group them together. And then we start to put the pieces together. So that's something of what we're going to do together this morning. We, we have to think about how these pieces fit together, how they're instructive to us. But if I could just kind of show my hand a little bit to how I think this puzzle fits together, to give you a hint concerning the thrust of the psalm, let me do this. This psalm is an Old Testament way of expressing what Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 15. Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You see, in the end, the Lord is going to build his house and make it flourish. And he's going to do it actually through his people as he makes their houses flourish, as he builds them up in the Lord. Well, let's consider the first piece of this puzzle, the vanity of striving without the Lord. I think there's an outline there in your bulletin. Lord willing, that'll help you follow along. As we begin to unpack this first piece of the puzzle, the vanity of striving without the Lord, read again the first two verses and see if you can spot any kind of key ideas or key words there. Verse 1. Unless the Lord Yahweh builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord Yahweh watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved sleep. Now, nearly every aspect of life is covered in these three verses, is it not? Right? Solomon, he, he speaks of success in building a house, security in watching over a city filled with houses, and sustenance in the house 
of a worried worker. Three times in these two verses, Solomon speaks of the vanity of pursuing these real and necessary activities without the Lord. And while this word for vanity is different than the the word Solomon uses for vanity in the book of Ecclesiastes, there is actually a good bit of overlap between the two. Here, when Solomon says that that building and watching and working is is vain without the Lord, what he's saying is that it's it's, it's worthless, it's it's empty, it's, it's meaningless. It's vain without the Lord. Depending upon human self-sufficiency, rather than depending upon the Lord as you build and watch and work, will leave you empty and anxious. Now, to be clear, all of this actually must be done, right? These are genuine responsibilities. The house must be built. The city must be watched. The home must have food. And yet, without the Lord, it's all done in vain. And it strikes me that as a king, these responsibilities would have weighed heavily upon Solomon. And yet this psalm also reveals that each of these responsibilities were deeply spiritual for Solomon. As you look at verse 1, do you wonder what house Solomon had in mind? Perhaps it was a temple. Solomon, after all, was commissioned to build God's house, the temple. This is what we learn in 2 Samuel chapter 7, really verses 1 to 17 or 5 to 17. Later this afternoon, let me encourage you to go and read that portion of God's Word. What you'll see there is that it's actually about David, Solomon's father. And in that passage, David recognizes that he's got this great house, a really nice house. But the Lord's house is really meager by comparison. It's just a tent at that time. And so David has these desires to build the Lord's house. And yet God says to David, no, 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 you're not going to build my house. But I, I am going to build your house and your son will build my house. And that's just what Solomon's doing, right? Solomon is going to build the house of the Lord. That's what he did in the course of his time. And yet, remember, Yahweh also promised David that he would build up his house. House has another sense, a kind of a dynasty sense of people living in your house. So God promised David that he would build up his house through offspring, through sons who would reign upon the throne and follow him. And just a hint, that's an important piece to the second half of the psalm. Right? Where God promises children or sons. I hope that you can see that what Solomon is realizing is this. Uh, though we as a nation, right, in Solomon's temple building days, that we are taking up this project of building the temple, building the very house of God, unless the Lord is laboring with us while we labor, we're striving in vain. Our building must have the Lord's blessing and his own building kind of attached to it or else we labor in vain. It's true for Solomon as a builder. That was true for the exiles who would come back, right? They returned from uh, being in exile and they had to rebuild the temple. They would have the same idea that they needed the Lord to build with them. And this is true for us too. We too must depend upon the Lord as we build up His house and our homes. And why? Why depend entirely upon ourselves as we build and create? Why not depend upon God, the first builder, the creator? After all, it was God who created the heaven. He built the world and all that is in it. Amos chapter 9, verse 6 says that God built the heavens. He actually built the first woman, too. Did you know that? So in Genesis chapter 2, verse 22, when Moses says, And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. What Moses is literally saying is that the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he built into a woman. God, he's the first builder. To build independently of him is to show great hubris. To build dependently upon him is to show great humility. 
When we depend upon God as we strive and build, we build honestly and humbly, acknowledging that we're finite, we're in need of God's help. Apart from God, our efforts will be futile and frustrating. We will labor in vain. That's why we must build upon the Lord. Jesus teaches us this too. So do you remember his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount? Really, at the end of that sermon, in Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 to 27, Jesus tells us that the wise man built his house upon the rock. The very words of Jesus Christ. It's the question for you. Are you building your house upon the Lord Jesus Christ? Your life. Are you building your life upon God, the wisdom of His Word, the foundation of His Word? We must build our own homes, our own church as well. Trusting in the Lord and trusting in His Word. Otherwise, we're laboring in vain. Solomon's success in building the house of God was entirely dependent upon the mercy of God. It was entirely dependent upon God's willingness to grant the builders success. Solomon was acknowledging God's sovereignty over all of the house building. So do you. Do you acknowledge God's sovereignty over all of your building? Be on guard against building without begging God to build with you. Think of those who built the Tower of Babel, right? They were building to enlarge their name, not the name of God. And so what did God do? God came down and He crushed their labors. He frustrated them. And their labors were in vain. They built that tower in vain. And God can certainly frustrate and expose the futility of our building wherever so He pleases. So when you're building a computer program, do you pause and pray? Lord, bless these labors and build with me as I build this program. Help me to build it for the glory of your name and not to build it in vain. When, when you're building in your workplace, when you're building a, a website through, through writing articles or you're building legislation, writing portions of bills or building a legal case on behalf of the government, on behalf of a client, uh, building a landscape or building, a, 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 a building itself, right? Uh, checking the foundations of the land, whether I'll be safe and secure, building a financial plan for a business, building a military mission, building a meal for your family, building a lesson plan for your students, or a curriculum for your homeschool students, building research for a think tank. Do you pause and pray? Or do you build like an atheist? Do you build like a Christian, depending upon God? Do you pray, Lord, bless these labors and build with me, build through me? And to be clear, Solomon is not saying we can let go and let God. Uh, you can't turn up to work and kind of watch the keyboard to see if they just start depressing and writing that article for you. That's not how work works, right? You, you have to turn up to work and you have to work. And God uses means and he means to use you and your building. Well, in the first half of verse 1, we see that success in building requires the blessing and building of the Lord. And in the second half of verse 1, Solomon provides another example of what he's talking about, just to make sure that we don't miss the point. Here we see this security in the city. Security in the city is dependent upon God giving sight to the watchman. In the ancient world, men would be posted on the walls of the city and watchtowers. They would scan the horizon day and night to remain on guard against approaching armies. But even the best watchmen, who don't need glasses, right? Uh, they can miss movement in the dark. Solomon, he built a grand city and it could come crashing down at any moment through an undetected enemy. Underneath that language of watching is actually the idea of keeping watch. It's the idea that we find in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, back in the garden. A lot of Solomon's ideas in this poem are actually rooted back in the creation narrative. So in Genesis chapter 2, 15, 
when God commissioned Adam to keep watch over the garden, that's the same language that's used here in our psalm. Here are the images of Psalm 127 of a faithful watchman laboring to stay awake and doing so entirely dependent upon his own self-sufficiency. Solomon tells us you can, you can strive to stay awake and keep watch, but unless the Lord is keeping watch over the city with you and through you, your watching is a waste. The Psalms of Ascent teach us that at bottom, the Lord is the protector of His people. Perhaps later today or tomorrow, go and read those passages in the Psalms listed on that handout there from the Psalms of Ascent and you'll learn that the Lord is on the side of His people, that He surrounds them and that He keeps them secure. We can reasonably pursue the safety and security of our cities and communities. We can hire men and women to police the streets. We can say something if we see something. We can put alarms in banks and on our homes and cars. But in the end, all of our keeping and watching are in vain if we are not kept by the Lord. So do you beg the Lord to keep your city and your community safe? Do you beg the Lord to keep your loved ones and your house safe? Do you put your trust entirely in the defenses, earthly defenses and security systems and forget about the Lord? Or do you plead with God to watch over your city, your co-workers, your neighbors, your house? In the second verse of the psalm, Solomon, he actually kind of verbally sticks his finger in our chest. I don't know if you notice the shift in language. There's a sharp shift in language. In this verse, we move from a distant builder and a watchman to you. That's what's going on here. What Solomon is doing is he's applying the truth of verse 1 to you in verse 2. He's saying that what those builders and watchmen were doing in their labors, laboring without the Lord, is what you have been doing, trying to provide sustenance for your home. Here, the psalm comes home, literally, doesn't it? It's an image of a head of a household who is hurried and harried and providing for his home. He labors long hours, independent of the Lord. And he does so in vain, just like the builder and the watchman were doing so in vain. You can see it in the way he eats his bread quickly and anxiously because he has to get back to work. You've seen someone do this, haven't you? Someone so swallowed up in work that they wolf down a wonderful meal only to go back to the office and toil late into the evening. They burn the candle at both ends because the success of the work depends entirely upon them, or so they think. They're anxiously toiling away. And when Solomon mentions anxious toil, he's again going back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. It goes there in the effects of the fall. When Adam sinned against the Lord, the consequences of sin were such that pain in childbearing was multiplied. Pain in getting goods from the ground were increased. And that word for pain in Genesis chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 is the same word for anxious toil here in verse 2. You see, we only compound the conditions of the curse when we try to labor apart from God. Our anxieties are only increased. And this is one of the things that we need to recognize about our anxiety. Anxiety assumes that God is absent, but He's not. Anxiety assumes that God has no affection for us, but He does. Look at what Solomon says there at the end of verse 2. For He gives to His beloved sleep. Do you see that? God gives to his beloved sleep. He's not absent. He's present. He's present in a gracious, generous way. He, he gives. He's present in a benevolent way. He loves. And this is probably very personal for Solomon. I don't know if you know this, but Solomon has another name. If you were to go and read 2 Samuel chapter 12, 
verses 24 and 25, he's also called Jedediah, which means beloved. So Solomon might kind of be placing himself in his own poem here. Here is Solomon, wise but anxious Solomon, likely preaching to himself this sermon. The Lord is present. The Lord is powerful. The Lord provides. The Lord is love. The Lord gives to his beloved peace and rest. Do you remember what God the Father said of Jesus in his baptism? In Mark chapter 1, verse 11, he said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Jesus knew the Father loved him, and that led him to lay his head down and sleep, even in a stormy sea, on a boat. Dear Christian, you too are God's beloved. And he gives you the gift of sleep because he loves you. Don't throw that gift away. Embrace that gift and get a good amount of sleep. He gives you sleep because you are his beloved. And honestly, this is one of the reasons that I actually use the word beloved from time to time in sermons. Because I want to remind you not only that I love you, but more importantly that God loves you. We too often forget that. And here in verse 2, Solomon is saying that those who are weary and heavy laden, those who anxiously toil as though all depends upon them, that there is a God who loves us. And we can depend upon Him. We can depend upon Him because in the words of one commentator, the Lord gives to His people by grace what they could never grasp by their labor. If you've been living and laboring in anxious toil, living and laboring as though all depends upon you, then receive the loving gift of sleep from God. Trusting God with our labors allows us to lay down at night and leave everything into the Lord's capable hands. Sleep actually can be an exercise of faith. Have you thought about that? Because when we sleep, we tell the truth that actually nothing in the world ultimately depends upon us. The world keeps spinning, even though we've stopped striving. No, the sovereign God remains in control. He continues to labor even when we have laid down and ceased from ours. And to a pilgrim on the road to Jerusalem for worship, this would have been challenging. After all, from time to time, his thoughts are no doubt drifting back home. Who will take up all of that care and that work that needs to happen back at home? Such anxious toil would probably even tempt him not to go to the house of the Lord, but instead stay home and work. Has that ever been a temptation for you? Have you ever been tempted to keep working? Instead of attending worship, worship of God. Beloved, relax. Rest. God has given it to you as a gift. He, he loves you. Isn't this what Jesus told us in Luke 12? Remember that passage that we read earlier in the service? Remember how Jesus said, Do not be anxious about your life, about what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. Remember when Jesus said, Seek first his kingdom. And all these things will be added to you. That's a promise from your Savior. Seek first His kingdom, and all these things will be added to you. Jesus said, Fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Christian, God takes delight in you. He is pleased with you. Labor in the day and lay down at night, trusting that the Lord has everything under control. It is in vain to burn yourself out building your house when the Lord is happy to build and bless you. Well, we've seen the vanity of striving without the Lord. We turn now to consider our second puzzle piece, the value of children from the Lord. 
We find this in verses 3 to 5 of our psalm. Follow along as I read those verses now. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord Yahweh, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. As I mentioned earlier, some commentators are befuddled by how the second half of the psalm relates to the first. But another hint is given there right in that little word, from. Do you see it there? Here we see the provision of God. God gives to his beloved children, or really, literally, actually in the text is sons. Verse 3, just as he gave to his beloved, sleep. Verse 2, God is a giving God. He gives good gifts to his beloved, and one of them is children, little boys and little girls. This psalm is about a generous and loving God who's building his house, watching over his people, and blessing them from his bounty. It's about two different perspectives on life. One lived in humble dependence upon God, and one lived in great hubris apart from God. It's an affirmation that God is building his house, not merely through stones stacked together, but through sons and daughters among his people. Solomon is now laying out more evidence for why we should live in humble dependence upon God. Because he's good, because he's generous, because he loves us. Solomon wants us to set our eyes on this reality. That's why he says, behold. Some translations might say, look. But what does Solomon want us to look at? He wants us to look at the children. Solomon says, the children. Look, they're they're proof that God loves you. This is how God provides the success, the security, and the sustenance being sought. When we're told that children are a heritage from the Lord, we're being told that they're an inheritance. This is actually the the language that God used when He spoke about giving the people of Israel the promised land of Canaan. It was a heritage. It was an inheritance from Him. And what a marvelous gift that land was. It was a good land. It was a land flowing with milk and honey. God is the giver of children. Children come by grace, not by grit. Children are always a gift from the Lord. No child comes into this world unless God opens the womb. God in His wisdom and varied providence gives children when and where He pleases. As one pastor wisely said, he wrote, No one deserves to have children. God doesn't give you children because He sees what a wonderful parent you will be. Fertility is not a matter of merit. That also means that God isn't punishing you if you can't have children. Infertility is not a matter of demerit. God gives as He chooses, and fertility and infertility are in His hands. Children should always be welcomed into our world and welcomed into our homes because they are from the Lord. Uh, This is one reason why killing children in the womb is such an offense to God. He gave them as a gift. And those who murder their children in the womb are spurning the generous gift of God. Still, there is mercy and forgiveness in Jesus Christ for the sin of abortion and murder. Jesus says, come to me and I will forgive you. Jesus forgives us all in his grace and mercy. So come to him. This idea that children are a heritage or an inheritance not only speaks of how God is building his house, but also God is providing for the continuation of the house. The household inheritance would be passed down from one generation to the next through the children. The children are valuable because they're a gift from God. They're valuable because they sustain the blessings of God. And they're valuable 
in another way too. See it? They are like arrows in the hand of a warrior. Not that they are arrows, but that they are like arrows. What, what do you use an arrow for? You use arrows for protection and defense. Children can become a means of safety and security even in your old age. It has been often said, but having a multitude of children was God's original elder care program. And children, children, I'm speaking to you now, children, take this to heart. You are God's original elder care program. God means for you to grow up and to take care of your parents in many ways that are similar to the ways in which they have taken care of you. Just as your parents have partnered together to provide and to protect for you, so you can partner with your siblings to care for your parents as well. And mark well that Solomon mentions the children of one's youth. Do you see that in the text? Solomon, I think, is actually encouraging us to have children in our youth. Many are delaying marriage and children. Uh, in 1872, the great commentator, uh, William Plummer, said this, It is a growing evil of our modern times, 1872, it's a growing evil of our modern times that marriages are so often deferred till it is highly improbable that in the course of nature the father can live to mold his offspring to habits of honor and virtue. If that was a growing evil in 1872 to defer and to delay marriages, then it is a growing evil today as well. I know that it may be awkward, but some of you in this congregation are going to need to try to start dating. Uh, things may not work out, and we'll work through that and walk through that with you even when that does. But since I've already made you all uncomfortable, let me just make you a little more uncomfortable. Brothers, speaking to the young single men here for a moment, don't be cowards. Risk rejection. Risk rejection. If you're marriageable, by which I mean, if you've got work and you can provide, then ask a girl who loves Jesus out. If you're not marriageable, then get work and get to the point of being able to provide. And let me say this. It takes less to provide than you think. You don't have to own a home and two cars. You can huddle together in a tiny apartment with barely any lighting. It can be done. It has been done. If brothers shouldn't be cowards, then sisters, you should be careful not to be career-driven. Look, I understand you need to work, and you should, especially if the Lord hasn't brought a husband into your life. You, you, you need to work, and you should. Even if he has, uh, then there may be different reasons for you to continue working. So if the Lord has brought a husband into your life, there may be different reasons for you to continue working. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is that you should be ready to let the career go. Uh, you certainly shouldn't let a career stand in the way of children or raising children or teaching your children. And at the risk of sounding sexist to our modern ears, um, let me say something that I think is faithful to the Bible. Sisters, God made you to have children. But your body design is good. As we've already considered, you are, according to Genesis chapter 2, verse 22, you are well built in God's kindness and grace. Making a home and building a home are a blessing to all in the home. And I especially want to say that to the daughters of this congregation. Uh, girls, young ladies, as you grow up in the world, the world will hold out to you its riches. Be careful not to be taken captive by the riches of this world. 
and miss out on what God calls a rich blessing and reward children. When people ask you what you want to do when you grow up, I hope that a loving husband making a home and raising children is on your shortlist. It may have other things on the list. That is fine as well. But I do hope that a loving husband making a home and raising children is on your shortlist. If that would be God's providence and love toward you. And to be clear, marriage and children are not normative for all women. So marriage is not a rule. Uh, It's not normative in the sense that everyone must be married. And if they're not, they're in sin. Because that's not true. Uh, God's providence is varied. I use that phrase, you should embrace it in your own life. God's providence is varied. He doles out one thing to another and to another. It's it's different for, for each of us. God's providence is varied. It is different according to each one of us for His design for us. And it may be His design that some do not marry. And God is not wrong, and you are not cursed if you do not marry or if you do not have children. God in His varied providence has designed different yet perfect and good providence for each one of us. He only gives to us what is best, the Scriptures teach us. And you, you should simply be faithful to the Lord day by day. He is building your home differently, but He is building the home nonetheless. It may be even God's hard providence that sometimes married couples do not have children. That said, marriage is normal, though not normative, and having children is the expectation laid upon those who do get married. Children are only the natural fruit of marriage. And children need shaping, straightening, and sharpening. Uh, As I told a father earlier in this week, arrows need to be straight and sharp if they're to be serviceable. Uh, That means that you must take pains to shape them. It takes discipline to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So dads and moms, shape your children by teaching them the wisdom of God's word. Dads and moms, straighten your, your children according to the law of God. Dads and moms, straighten and sharpen your children by showing them how the scriptures speak of Jesus. Solomon, he even calls this a privilege. In an echo of the opening psalm, Psalm 1, Solomon says, Blessed is the man. In other words, happy is the man who has a bounty of children. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. Verse 5. This past week I was... Um, I was having lunch with a man who will be in charge of building a $65 million facility for uh, seniors or elder care facility just two blocks away from our church over here. Um, we were talking about the age trends and the inke- increasing need for elder care facilities. And do you know why? Because there are not enough children to take care of those who are aging. So in premarital counseling, uh, I almost always tell couples, have kids earlier than they think and have more than they think. Children are a blessing. I think that too many want to delay children to kind of get to know one another. But why delay blessing? Hasn't God, the Lord God, given you enough opportunity to get to know one another, so much so that you've committed to spend the rest of your lives together until death do you part? Uh, Hasn't God built in a nine-month period of time for you to get to know one another before a little one arrives? Ordinarily, uh, God's providence works out differently. We have a couple in our congregation who had a a baby should a little earlier than nine months. And that was the Lord's kindness to them and blessing to them. He's given us these things as good gifts. So get married and have kids as the Lord providence enables you. Now, this text does not tell us how many children we must have. It doesn't tell us how many children actually amounts to a full quiver. Um, again, that will differ due to God's varied providence for couples. Some families will have more children Others will have fewer children. And that's fine. 
it's fine for quiver sizes to differ among families, from one family to the next. But it is a privilege and a blessing to have children. And we ought to fill our homes with them as we are enabled by God. We ought to give thanks for them too. And they ought to know that we are thankful for them. So whenever I tuck my kids into bed at night and I'm praying, I almost always pray, Father, thank you for these children. I'm really thankful for my children. I'm really proud of my children. Uh, They love me. They forgive me when I sin against them. Uh, They show me my sin. They tell me when I've sinned. That's actually a blessing to me. It helps aid in my sanctification and growth in Christ. And they cover it with love. Uh, They're a blessing to me. And I only pray that I'm a blessing to them. It has been said that children do not make a rich man poor. They make a poor man rich. Indeed they do. Solomon, he concludes this psalm by explaining how these children will speak in defense of their fathers at the gate. The gate was where legal disputes took place in Israel. Think of how Boaz went to the gate to speak on Ruth's behalf. How he redeemed her back. Uh, how he uh, was entitled, how she was entitled to the land of her father-in-law, Elimelech, and he redeemed her. He spoke in her defense there. So Boaz did. And what Solomon is saying is that when the father's enemies turn up at the gate, his sons will turn up too. Uh, they will preserve their father's good name and speak in his defense. They've lived with him. They've known his sins and faults. They've known his weaknesses and strengths, his faithfulness, his love for the Lord. And still they serve as his character witnesses when his character is being assassinated. Sadly, that happens too often these days. And other friends and loved ones need to step up and defend character. But how does the vanity of striving without the Lord and the value of children from the Lord, how does, how does this help a pilgrim on the road? How does this vision of building, the Lord building His house and blessing His beloved sleep and sons help a pilgrim on the road? We've looked at the pieces of the puzzle. Let's try to put them together now in our third and final point. The vision of the Lord building His house. As we do, I want you to read this psalm again. Read Psalm 127 again. Follow along. A song of ascents of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. This psalm is dominated by the theme of depending upon the Lord to build, to watch over, sustain, and provide for his house. In the first half of the psalm, we find a negative emphasis. The vanity of striving to build the house of God and the vanity of keeping the house of the city secure. The vanity of sustaining one's own house among the people of God through anxious toil. The first half is a call to abandon independence for dependence upon the Lord. As through us he builds and watches and keeps. In the second half of the psalm, we find a positive emphasis. The positive emphasis and the promise of the Lord to build up the trusting pilgrim's house through offspring. The Lord prospers, provides for, and protects the pilgrim's house. In other words, the Lord builds up the pilgrim's house. In fact, in the Hebrew, there's actually a play on words. The word for builder 
and the word for son or the children really there in the ESV, it actually has a similar sound. So the building and the sons sounds similar in Hebrew. So those going to worship at the Lord's house to show their love actually for the Lord and his house are assured that the Lord loves them and their house. The Lord has an interest in building up their house, even as they build up his house through worship. In fact, the Lord is building up their houses as he builds up their house. The Lord's house is connected to the house of his people because those who believe, they're actually members of his household. We learn this really in Jesus Christ, don't we? This psalm, it's by Solomon, it's instructive, it's filled with wisdom, it's filled with warning. The wisdom of the psalm is that our lives ought to be entirely dependent upon the Lord. It is in vain, it's pointless, meaningless, it's unsafe to build, to watch, and toil for sustenance without the Lord. Especially when the Lord is so ready to build, to watch, and to bless His beloved. The wisdom of this psalm is to give yourself entirely to the Lord. Have you done that? Have you given yourself and your life entirely into the charge of the Lord in His hands? This helps every pilgrim on the way to remember that His ultimate success in building a house, His ultimate security, His ultimate sustenance is in the hands of the Lord. And the wisdom of this psalm is as simple as to look to the Lord in humble dependence as you work, as you watch, and especially when you worry. The warning of this psalm is found in the very life of its author. In so many ways, Solomon failed to live up to and live out the wisdom of the psalm here. You can go read of the disaster and the drift that occurred in Solomon's life in the book of 1 Kings. Derek Kidner, he summarized Solomon's life like this. Solomon's building, both literal and figurative, became reckless, his kingdom a ruin, and his marriage is a disastrous denial of God. Solomon, he started so well. He built with God's blessing, but he soon began to drift. And his story, listen to how his story ends in 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 1 to 4. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. See, Solomon tried to build up his house by marrying women from different places uh, with related to kings, right? He married the, the daughter of Pharaoh. He tried to build up the wealth of his house through making these alliances instead of depending upon the Lord. Solomon's house building his family building was all in vain. He did not trust in the Lord with all of his heart. The pilgrims singing this song on the way to Jerusalem would have been warned, don't end like Solomon did. Trust in the Lord. And they would have had hope too. They were waiting for someone greater than Solomon to come and to build God's house according to God's design, to watch over God's people with God's defense and to raise up children who trusted in God as their father. In, the words, in other words, the pilgrims who sang this song on their way to Jerusalem were waiting for God's son, God's promised king and Messiah to come. The window of hope that this psalm provides is that God promised to give his people children. The Lord Jesus Christ was in that line of children yet to come. We read about it in the genealogies early on in the Gospels. This would keep the line of the hope of Messiah alive until one day he arrived and God's son has come. The Lord Jesus Christ has come. The Father would build His house through Jesus. You remember what Jesus said in John chapter 2? After He told the money changers in the temple 
not to make God's house a house of trade. He said, destroy this temple and I will raise it, or build it again in three days. And the Apostle John explains that he was talking about the temple of his body, which the Father raised and rebuilt three days after his, after his death from his resurrection from the dead. And now in and through Jesus Christ, God, God the Father, is building his end time house. What did Jesus say to Peter after his confession that Jesus was the Messiah, the King that God had promised? In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus is the faithful Son who speaks in defense of the Father and His children at the gate. Do you remember what Peter said to Christians in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5? He said, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Paul put it another way. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul said, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Paul even explained the building project of God's end time house in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. He says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens of the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You see, the church is the household of God. And we ought to build and seek her good, even as we build and seek the good of our own homes and households. Did you know that as a Christian, you can even labor with God? So just like verse 1 of Psalm 127, listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9. He says, For we are God's fellow workers... You are God's field, God's building. Did you know that you can labor for the Lord and not labor in vain? Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, Abound in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So are you a part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and building up His house, His household of people? Are you part of that house that God is building in Jesus Christ? And are you building with Him? Or are you trying to build your own kingdom? And your own house, apart from God. Friend, as we conclude, I want to invite you to become a member of the household of God. And to build with Him instead of apart from Him. If you go on building your life apart from the Lord, and against the will of the Lord, it will all be in vain. We have all begun to build and watch and work apart from the Lord. That's what the Bible calls sin. And it is rebellious desire and deed to do your will rather than God's will. So friend, turn from vainly building your life apart from God. Turn from your sin and come into God's household through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus lived for sinners like you and like me. He lived a life of perfect dependence upon God. Jesus died for sinners like you and like me. He died bearing the eternal wrath of God on the cross so that when Satan tries to accuse us and bring charges against us, They've been removed because Jesus has dealt with them. He's removed that record of guilt because Jesus has paid them in full. And Jesus, He rose from the grave on the third day in victory over sin and death so that you and I could come into God's house. Jesus has told us in John chapter 14, verse 2, that He returned to the Father's house in glory to prepare a place for all who turn from their sin and trust in Him. 
So friend, turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ. Believe that Jesus lived for you, that he died for you, and that he was raised from the grave for the forgiveness of your sins. And if you want to know more of what it means to come into God's household of faith and to build up God's household of faith, then please find me at the door after the service. I'd love to talk with you about that. Dear Christian, beloved, as you make your journey to the new heavens and the new earth through the wilderness of this world, remember Psalm 127. Sing this song. Remember the words of Jesus. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Remember that God is committed to building your house and His. After all, Psalm 127 speaks of God's generosity. And Jesus Himself has said that whoever abides in Him, it is He that bears much fruit. May we abide in Christ and build His kingdom for His glory. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the privilege of being invited in as fellow co-workers and co-laborers, fellow builders with you, building up your household. Father, we pray and ask that you would bless our labors as a congregation to build up the kingdom of Christ by holding out the offer of Jesus and his mercy towards sinners. Father, we pray and ask uh, that you would keep and watch every household here in whatever form that you have fashioned. And we pray that you would bless it with abundant spiritual fruit. Father, bring yourself much glory and help us to hide ourselves in Christ, the one who is greater than Solomon, who depended upon you in every task and who speaks in our defense for your glory. We pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.